The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales. Episode 38, Say Uncle. his head in disbelief and looked through the tiny opening again. The lands of fairies stretched out before his vision and did not dim or disappear in the blink of an eye. Again he heard the voice. Thomas, do you want to come home? Who is Thomas? You are true Thomas, long away from the undying lands. Do you want to come home? Jack wasn't worried that onlookers would think he was nuts, rather than just an ordinary guy holding a serious conversation with a carved facsimile of one. That's the kind of world they lived in now. A man in a mask talking animatedly to, hopefully, a Bluetooth earpiece, or a man in a mask remonstrating with his own demons. None of the few passers-by so much as looked up or altered their stride. Jack shakily returned the small carving to his pocket, trying his best to steady his nerves, and walked back to his flat. He saw the text from Isabel and Lucas and reassured them. I'm okay. Something's happened. I'm dealing with it. We'll explain as soon as I can. He rang his mother's number, put her voicemail message on speakerphone, and recorded it. Then he played it over and over until his battery ran down as he wept like a child. Dealing with it be damned, he thought. Sometime later, he got up to make tea. He put his very retro, bobbly red kettle on the stove to boil. The doorbell rang. As a single person who worked from home, he had no bubble to speak of. He was expecting no visits, and he hadn't ordered anything recently. A scam delivery? He needed that like a hole in the head right now. What was wrong with some people? Then he thought that maybe it was someone from the hospital. Faint hope kindled in Jack's heart. Maybe they'd gotten his number mixed up, his mother wasn't gone, and someone had come to set things right. Socially distanced, of course. Jack pulled his mask into place and opened the door, half caught between hope and annoyance. The shrill whistle of the boiling kettle masked his cry of surprise as his uncle Bjarmid lurched forward just in time to catch his nephew in a dead faint. Jack woke bleary-eyed, coming reluctantly to reality, or whatever this was. His mother was dead. His uncle, now setting a steaming mug of tea before him, should be. You're dead, Jack said pointedly. And you don't look so good either, lad, but hello yourself. Drink this, it'll steady you, milky and sweet. Do you want a drop of the Irish herbal? Diarmid produced a small silver flask from somewhere inside his huge, shapeless coat. If it's the elixir of all healing and you're my death, go on so. I suspect there's nothing herbal about it. It was distilled from something that grew in the ground. 
By that argument, beef is vegan because the cow ate grass. Careful, son. You'll never recover from your faint with all that loss of blood. Jack started up, checking himself for injury. What? Diarmid looked at Jack with a small, knowing smile. So sharp, I'll cut myself, I, Jack sighed, falling back on the cushions, realizing he'd fallen for their old joke. Jack found the easy pattern of their banter unnerving. It was as though his uncle had never left. But he disappeared over a decade ago. More than that. Why did you leave? I wasn't needed. But you were missed. We loved you. Your mother knew, and I missed you too. But I knew I'd be back by and by. For years, you stopped calling after me. So I thought you were fine without me. People tend to do that with loved ones who die, stop calling. Jack looked at his phone, still hearing his mother's answer phone message over and over in his head. Well, I went away, but here I am. You've been calling to me for weeks. What do you mean? All your stories, son. Diarmid, son of the King of Light, is a guest at Red John's wedding. All the giants. The Swan of Endless Tales came and told me weeks ago. So I started listening for cues to see if you really wanted me. Then your mother, the big man trailed off. Why did you come back? To bring your mother home and to help you. Help me what? Get back to your world after you save this one. You're hoping I faint again? Diarmid laughed. Nay, lad, drink up and I'll explain. Jack sipped the hot, sweet tea gratefully as his uncle's familiar, deep voice washed over him, true as the tide. After Diarmid had spoken for some time, Jack sat up. So who's Thomas? You are. Thomas of Erkeldoon, called True and the Rhymer. He was a Scottish prophet seven years in fairy. Seven years by mortal telling, because mortals have a thing about time, Diarmid replied. I thought our family was Irish. Your mother used to have a saying, a Scotsman is nothing more than an Irishman with a hole in his head, do you remember? Aye, and when I was young, if we met someone with a Scottish accent, I used to do my best to check, Jack smiled at the memory. Come to think of it, he'd never done that to Isabel. Obviously, a sense of self-preservation increased with age. Well, borders transcend a bit of water where the lands beyond the Vale lie unbroken across the realms of men. Diarmid's mention of the Vale made Jack want to tell him about the group and Moot's archive. I know Moot. How could you? It's an app. It's the spirit of the libraries and scriptoria at Xinyang, Antioch, Alexandria, Lindisfarne, Constantinople, Cordova, and all the other recorded human repositories. It's the spirit of every collection of knowledge of every race in all the known worlds, Diarmid explained. The libraries you first mentioned were all destroyed, Jack said with a shudder and others besides. Only the mortal ones. The libraries of the ever-living aren't all books in the way we know them, but they are still extant. Moot is their caretaker also. The immortals never had much use for cataloging, so Moot does it. Did Moot destroy the human libraries? 
Jack never took Moot for a book burner, but he still didn't really know what to take it for. No, humans did that. Moot collected, preserved, listened, added. We need to go to these archives to meet your companions, to make a plan to counter her. Baba Yaga? She is known in every language, but yes, Diarmid replied. As am I, he thought. If I'm this Thomas the Rhymer, who is my mother? She was your mother, lad, Diarmid answered in Here endeth the lesson tones. Contact your friends and take me to Moot's Vale. You need an invitation, Jack began. His phone chimed with Moot's coded invitation for Jack's expected guest. Oh, really? Diarmid raised an eyebrow. Moot knows how this goes, obviously. I think Moot certainly knows how it ends, Jack responded. I know an ending, too. Unless we change it, let's go. When they got to the archives, Moot greeted Diarmid like an old friend. Isabel curtsied deeply in immediate recognition. Govenseer, she said. Lucas dropped to his knees, staring. Mikola Mojaisky, he breathed. Everyone's phones went off at once. Baba Yaga was ready to begin. You go. I'll stay here and listen in, Diarmid instructed. Suddenly, the three friends were whisked back to Babiaga's dasha. The hut danced in malevolent delight. The witch greeted them. Welcome, pigeons. In Russia, we personify sorrow, want, bad luck, woe. We give them power and tell tales about them. Our dear Jack has just learned about sorrow firsthand. Your poor mother... More about that later, sweet boy. For now, I will teach you about lijo, or evil. Once there was a smith who was very talented and very prosperous. His hands could work anything. He had a very good life and began to doubt that there was evil in the world, although the priests and holy fools all said so. He began to fear for his faith and his immortal soul, and so he set out into the wide world in search of evil. On his journey, he met a tailor and told him of his quest. The tailor was well-dressed and in high demand, a craftsman also at the top of his game. "'I shall go with you, my friend,' the tailor agreed. "'I, too, would like to be able to recognize evil when I see it, lest it sneak up on me unawares.'" The two men traveled companionably until they found themselves on a dark, narrow path through the woods that was proving difficult for their laden horses. They left them tied to trees in a lush, hidden copse and continued on foot. By and by, they came to a large, derelict cottage that once must have been very fine. They saw that night was falling and the weather was promising to turn evil, even if that was the only trace of it they ever found. Let's shelter in that cottage, the tailor said. The smith readily agreed, and they went inside. The interior of the cottage was dark and squalid. Beasts, small and not so small, scurried into murky corners at the sound of their footsteps. They stayed there for some time, calling out greetings to see if the cottage was occupied. After a while, a tall, gaunt old woman in ragged black clothes entered. 
She wore her sparse hair in a desultory gray bun, and the two men could see that she had only one good eye. Someone for supper, she cried, slashing the tailor's throat with a long fingernail and proceeding to rend him into pieces for the stewing pot as the appalled and terrified Smith looked on. Do you do anything useful? she growled. I'm a smith. I, I can fashion anything out of any metal for any purpose, he stammered in his defense, hoping his trade would be enough somehow to save his life. Can you make me a new eye? Yes, but I'll need to hammer it into the socket, so you'll have to get me some cords to bind you with so you don't wriggle about while I do that. She shuffled out and came back with two cords, a thin one and a thicker one. The smith bound her with the thinner one, and she broke free of her bonds in an instant. But the thicker one held. He fashioned an eye out of silver for her, hoping to appeal to the old woman's vanity. When the eye was ready, he let the old woman hold and admire it while he heated up his tools. To sterilize them for this delicate operation, he explained, turning and driving the hot implements into her good eye with his smith's hammer. She howled and closed her hand over the silver eye, fleeing to the threshold. Instead of leaving the cottage, she turned and sat there, blocking the way out. You shan't escape, she said. After a time, her flock of sheep returned of their own accord from grazing, and she carefully ushered them past her single file into the cottage. This gave the smith an idea. In the morning, he turned his sheepskin coat inside out and put it on, going on all fours among the rest of the flock. The old woman carefully felt the fleece of each animal and let them out one by one. In this way, the smith escaped, saying, Farewell, Lijo. I have endured evil at your hands, but now I'm free. Evil will follow you, she promised. The smith ran into the woods. By and by, he found a golden hatchet stuck in a tree. He had no use for such a tool, but he thought he could compensate himself for his recent ordeal by selling it for a small fortune. He grasped it, but could not free it from the tree. To his horror, he couldn't free the hand that grasped the handle either. He heard Liho coming after him, stumbling blindly through the woods, snuffling at his scent like an animal and screaming in rage. He took out his knife and cut off his hand. Gravely wounded, he stumbled back to the copse where the horses were still tied as he and the tailor had left them. He dragged himself into the saddle and rode as fast as he could. He made it back to his home village, nearly perishing from loss of blood and infection. As the doctor treated him, he explained his case to the magistrate. The officials seemed new, and the smith hoped to make a good case in order to win some help for his plight. So you see, for the sake of confirming my beliefs, I encountered evil with my companion. He lost his life, and what is a smith without his hand, he asked plaintively. The dark-robed magistrate raised her head. The smith noted that the official was blind. Stretching forth a closed fist, her robes of office settling about her like raven's wings, Lijo stood to her full height 
and slowly opened her hand. Her palm, as well as the tip of every finger, held a slowly blinking evil eye. The only way you will ever be rid of evil is if you pass it on, she said, touching the smith between the eyes, and are blind to it yourself, because true evil doesn't need eyes like yours. Liho's head spun around and her gray hair formed into two more silver eyes in the back of her head. Evil is always watching. And from that day forward, pigeons, mortals spread and warded the evil eye amongst themselves, lest Liho watch them too closely and come looking for them. The Decameron shuffled. One of diamonds. Watch your back, pilot, Baba Yaga sneered, dismissively waving her hand and sending them back to the starting glass. Diarmid was already there, setting out a bottle and glasses. Looks like I came back just in time, he said. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.